Hi everyone, my name is Samyukta and I'm here with Brittany as your podcast host for Mu High Sessions. After a break, we are back with a new topic on mental health outcomes in a COVID world, as well as humanitarian aid during the pandemic. Yes, it's definitely very fitting to be talking about COVID impacts, especially seeing as the pandemic has left lasting effects on the medical field and community as a whole. This month, we have two guests who have very generously taken time to chat to us from the workforce and student volunteering perspectives. Our first guest is Jenny Kai, who teaches undergraduate psychology at the University of Melbourne and has experience from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, as well as the University of New South Wales. Here's what she had to say. Hello everyone, and today we have a lovely guest today. Her name's Jenny, and I'd like to introduce her and for her to talk about her job, what she does, and mental health and how it's been impacted during COVID times. So welcome, Jenny. Hi. Awesome. And just tell me a little bit about what you do. Um, I think you're a sessional tutor at University of Melbourne, so we'd like to know what that means and what you do. Okay, so um, basically I teach undergraduate psychology subjects and currently I'm tutoring um, personality and social psychology. And yeah, I used to tutor some first year subjects as well. So yeah, basically that just involves um, taking small group lessons with students. Um, Everything is online right now. And yeah, so that's my job. Awesome. So obviously you must have lots of knowledge about psychology. And you must have made lots of connections with your students over the past year or so. Uh, what would you say um, has made a great impact on mental health outcomes as COVID-19 has progressed? Um, I think there are many factors, but the first thing that comes to my mind is probably this sense of isolation and loneliness as um, we're entering longer and longer lockdowns um, in Victoria. And it's also the same for students who are currently overseas, of course. Um, And I mean, I think Melbourne has one of the world's longest and strictest um, lockdowns. And, um, you know, most people will understand it from a rational perspective that, you know, we're doing uh, the necessary and the right things to protect public health. But from an emotional level, I can see in my student that there is just a lot of anxiety and stress and also frustration um, during this entire process. You know, um, I know there are international students who are just um, hoping that uh, they can come to Australia and see their um, friends here and they just cannot. And um, there are also, you know, so mature age students, they have their kids to take care of at home and they have to kind of balance the study and while their kids are like screaming in the background. So it's definitely very hard for um, students from different backgrounds. So yeah, I think um, that sense of being vulnerable and um, being trapped at home and chaotic but also lonely at the same time is the impact that I'm seeing um, as COVID progressed. Yeah, definitely. And I think you made a really important point that it's different population groups that are affected from undergraduate students to mature age students who may have kids to people who are totally living by themselves, international students who may have no connection and no friends in Australia. So yeah, it's a really important point. And even just leading on to that, um, within Australia and even out of Australia, like there's definitely some in- certain inequalities and disparities that these populations have faced during COVID, um, mentally, etc. Like, what would what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, yeah, I think that's a really broad question. If I um, if I talk about all of the inequalities, that'll be an endless yeah. answer. So I think, <laughs> yeah, I think I might just focus on the mental health aspect. Um, well, I think the impact of social restrictions on pe- uh, people's mental well-being is kind of not uniform across different population groups. And I mean, although we're in the same pandemic. Um, which is um, very challenging for everyone, I think. Um, but different people have different resources to cope with this same situation that we're in. And for example, you know, for someone in a very higher social economic status, mm-hmm. I think they may be mm-hmm. able to work full time from home, and you know, they can order deliveries of their favorite food as usual. They can even have a walk in their gardens. Um, if they want to, you know, just breathe some fresh air. Um, but at the same time, we can also think of someone who probably do not have any of these coping resources. For example, um, if we think about people who live in crowded social housings, um, people who have existing financial struggles or mental health vulnerabilities. Um, and I mean, we can also think about, for example, temporary temporary migrant workers. You know, they were the first to lose their jobs, and there are also language barriers for them to access almost all supportive services. Um, not to even mention mental health services, and mm-hmm. um, so and they are also separated long term from their families who are overseas due to the border restrictions in Australia. So I think, yeah, just these are examples to illustrate that different populations really have different levels of resources for coping. And for people who have very little resources, this means that there are more um, risk for a certain um, group of people in terms of their mental health compared to others. Yeah, definitely. And it's quite evident that, like, you know, different socioeconomic groups have different resources and there's not much we can do, but obviously there's a different level of suffering, I guess, when it mm. comes to the pandemic. Do you have any thoughts on how do you think, you know, the government or people should really do to kind of change this? And I mean, it's definitely quite a big question and we're still in the middle of the pandemic anyway. But um, do you have any thoughts on what we, what we can do to maybe decrease this inequality or disparity? Yeah, I think there are many things that um, in terms of government policies or community responses that we can do. But I'll perhaps again focus on the mental health service delivery aspect. And um, I probably want to mention a little bit um, of the Royal Commission Mm -hmm. into the mental health care system in 2019, it was, I think. Yeah, 2019. And yeah, so basically the Royal Commission reviewed that the system, even before the pandemic, is already under significant pressure, um, as well as with many systematic issues. So this existing shortage Mm -hmm. um, of mental health services is definitely Mm -hmm. exacerbated um, due to increased demand for support during COVID-19. And, you know, I've read um, some um, news in terms of it it is very hard for people to get access to services during covid um, because there's just too much demand. Mm-hmm. And um, as well as many services went online, which created additional barriers um, for people who may not be familiar with technology. And um, I think this is a partic- particularly potent issue in Victoria um, because our extended lockdown. So I think the government or the community can come up with, with solutions to increase the accessibility 
as well as the availability of the yeah. mental health services. But of course, um, in terms of funding, it's going to be a long process. It's not like the government can just fund and start all the services um, within one day. But um, yeah, I think uh, basically accessibility and availability are the two important factors. And also want to mention that the solution, I think, should look different for different populations. It's not a, a uniform things. Like for universities, they can think about questions such as, you know, what is the best way to provide services for young people? And do we need more linguistically or culturally diverse services? And, you know, how can we provide services for onshore versus um, offshore students? Yeah, definitely. And I just want to add, like, my mother, she's a mental health nurse at um, Mercy Hospital. And she's just seen over the past year the rise of, cases and the people she interacts with every day and it all boils down to the lack of mental health resources to start with and how there's not much communication between the patient and people to help them which I think is which I think is quite um, interesting because it's definitely a prevalent issue in worldwide but specifically like Victoria as you mentioned so it makes me wonder why there hasn't been a, a leap in funding over the past year but yeah you've made a really good point and you know I was thinking mental health in itself is quite you know diverse and broad yeah. issue that not many people are ready to talk about yet do you have any suggestions or any you know thoughts on how we could probably mm-hmm. decrease that stigma around this topic that's quite prevalent in today's society well that's a very big question um <laughs> Yeah, in fact, I did my honest research um, related to stigma towards mental health. So I think from all these literatures, of course, there are like a lot of ways that people have proposed in terms of what is the best strategy to effectively reduce stigma towards mental health. Um, and, and, and I think the two most um, kind of major one is knowledge and contact. So knowledge is about educating the public, as well as, I guess, people with lived experience of mental health issues, the, the facts about mental, mental ill health, because uh, I think there is a lot of myth around that in terms of, you know, um, a lot of things in this area. So it's really about communicating the um, accurate facts towards people. And I think that will help to um, reduce some um, stereotypes and prejudices towards um, the perception of mental health issues. And the second one is contact, right? So um, the Royal Commission really emphasized that in the future, there should be more incorporation of people with lived experience in terms of policy making and service delivery. Um, so it's really about, um, so by contact, uh, we mean to actually listen to people with lived experiences and their stories and their perspectives and because people have a lot of fear Mm -hmm. towards what they don't understand usually and so Mm -hmm. if they really have some form of contact some form of contact regardless of uh, whether it's physical contact or online if they're reading the stories about mental health i think that's going to definitely help uh, with reducing that sense of the fear of the unknown and, and stigma as well Definitely. Um, yeah, that fear of the unknown is quite a important thing because I guess even for myself, three to four years ago, I, I wasn't able to differentiate what I was feeling, you know, what type of mental health that, that comes under because that's a huge umbrella, right? And I'm sure 
a lot of people around my age or even older probably feel the same way. And, you know, just to end on this, how do you think, I mean, you obviously interact with undergraduate students a lot. How do you think the university or even, you know, a student-run organization like MUHI could do to kind of help with um, aiding students, breaking the stigma, adding resources? Like, how do you think we could, as a university, help with that? I think as a student organization, the biggest thing um, you can do is to raise awareness about existing supportive services because I feel like a lot of people who actually mm-hmm. aren't aware of it, it's kind of, it, I mean, it's all on the website, but sometimes it's hard to navigate. Um, yeah. And another thing that yeah. a student organization could do is to build a channel of connections for a student because social isolation mm-hmm. is a really big risk factor for mental health. And I think if mm-hmm. students are feeling connected and they have a sense that they know where to seek help um, and support if they are in need. Um, and I think that would reduce some of the existing kind of barriers or disparities in getting support. And I think in terms of Muha, I know that the, the series case competition is about alleviating the youth mental yeah. health crisis, which I think is great. And I'm sure yeah. you've received like really great proposals that you could implement in the university. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. That's you're right about that. But um, you know, I think as a student organization, but even as a unit, university as a whole, um, we really need to place a, a great importance on mental health for students, and kind of realizing that it's not easy um, studying in isolation with no friends and just by yourself, and you know, lack of con- connection is really hard. And I think all the tutors and all the professors and lecturers are just trying their best to you know create as much contact as we can but yeah you know we're all trying our best so um hopefully it's end soon I guess <laughs> but yeah I, I really appreciate today's talk Jenny I, I learned a lot and um yeah it's, it's, just, it's a really big topic that I guess it's just the tip of the iceberg you know there's probably so much more that we need to discover and really you know, as you said, bring resources to the students. Um, so hopefully we could do that in the near future. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Sami, it sounds like you had a really insightful conversation with Jenny, and it's great to hear some application to the theory that we're all exposed to at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Our conversation was actually really interesting, and it put a lot of things in perspective for me. Um, But now we can listen to our next guest, Jeremy Bolton, one of Ignite's preclinical chairs, and what he has to say about student aid and its implications amidst the pandemic. Hey Jeremy, I hope you're going well. Thank you so much for coming along to our podcast today. It's really great to have you here, especially as one of Ignite's preclinical chairs. I'd love to first of all ask, could you tell us more about Ignite's work and mission? Yeah, hi Brittany, thanks so much for having me. Um, Yeah, so as you said, we're a a Monash global health organisation and we're working to create sustainable health initiatives and introduce uh, the medically oriented to education and advocacy within the, the global health field. Uh, so we also run loads of events and support a wide range of subcommittees which cover specific interest areas in further detail. And I suppose our goal as a group 
is to inspire, empower and network our community, particularly medical and other health students, uh, to improve global health standards and to engage and take ownership of our, our education into global health. And I suppose we do this through, uh, you know, educating the community on these issues, supporting trusted groups in responding to these issues through fundraising and facilitating broader involvement and engagement with these issues, particularly through running events, you know, which create avenues to pursue each of these things, be it education, fundraising or other forms of engagement. 100%. I really love how you've talked about engaging the wider community. And I think this really resonates with me, this idea of networking with different student groups, whether internal, external organizations or associations, just really trying to engage with people who might not already be exposed to this information, giving everyone a pathway into which they can help their community. I think that's so valuable. In which case, I think Ignite does really well with these events and its subcommittees such as Talk. So we'd love to hear a bit more about how COVID-19 may have impacted your work and volunteering specifically. Yeah, so we've got loads of really great subcommittees and obviously it's changed the way a lot of our events, um, both through our subcommittees and through Ignite itself, how these events have had to work. But uh, we've done our best to adapt and look at different ways of engaging with the community. And I think we've done... Um, a really good job at that. Uh, looking at the subcommittees individually, I suppose, or at least some of the subcommittees, uh, as you say, we have TALK, um, which, are, which is the education branch of Ignite, and they have some really high-quality events educating the community on a broad array of global health issues from gender equity to humanitarian aid to health technology and more. This year, they had some really great modules on global health pathways, queer health from a global perspective and improving healthcare for people of colour and those were able to run really well online uh, despite COVID. Uh, we also have Operation Smile which is the student branch of a medical charity which helps fix craniofacial deformities in children and they were able to have a really successful cocktail night which was able to run in person and that was a, a really great fundraising and social event and they had um, Mr. David Chong speak, who's the president of the Australasian Cleft Lip and Palate Association and a, a plastic surgeon from the, the Royal Children's. So that was a really great event and they were lucky to get that in at the start of the year uh, before COVID. Oh, they focus on removing barriers and improving standards of healthcare for refugees and they you know, have been able to work pretty well through COVID as well. A lot of their events are online. They've got their um, annual refugee symposium uh, tomorrow night or the 2nd of October um, so you know for anyone listening a little plug for that I definitely recommend going to that um, and for you know the Ignite events ourselves as a committee um, you know they we've definitely had challenges through um, through COVID the first half of the year was relatively uh, as expected um, except perhaps for some capacity limits so we ran trivia night um, which was raising money for msf we had our launch which was a, an educational event looking at neo-colonialism and, and ncds and then we also had our hackathon which was with the the blue cross aged care volunteering initiative um, and they were all able to run in person um, which was really great uh, the second half of the year has obviously uh, been more complicated with COVID and we've had to look at different ways to convert our in events online. Um, the biggest one of which would have been Global Health Training Day, which is our major educational event of the year, um, which 
uh, ended up being on Zoom and we, we did our best to make it as interactive as possible and that obviously had its difficulties but in the end it ran ran really well. We had four great workshops um, which looked at, the first looked at some contemporary issues in global health um, such as gender equity and vaccine hesitancy and climate change and then we had some really great speakers um, looking at mental health of refugees, looking at uh, climate change and different pathways in global health. And we also had some really interactive interactive workshops, which was, was really exciting, looking at some, you know, medical challenges and contextualising aid work. So overall, uh, whilst COVID certainly had its challenges, um, I think when the subcommittees have done a pretty good job at making the most of certainly the educational aspects of it um, and... The, the volunteering sides, the fundraising has also been really successful. Yes, I think it holds a lot of truth in the idea that Australia is in a very good situation or position compared to many places around the world. And it really puts it into perspective for us to have these eye-opening events and modules in which we can talk to people who've had these experiences overseas and who are able to tell us about the offshore experience. So I think it's really great that Ignite is stepping out and making these active decisions to reach out to people who can offer these new pieces of advice and information to us as medical students. And to a large extent, I think it tells us a lot about the health workforce in future and the current health science students, because there's so much passion and energy, and as well as that excitement to find out more about the world around us and really step outside of the bubble, which we may think to be quite insular at times. So really great to hear that your subcommittees are working on that. And I think on a similar note, Ignite recently held a virtual fun run for Médecins Sans Frontières, which is Doctors Without Borders. So with increased social isolation over the last year or so, what do you think are the main implications for people requiring healthcare services and also for the mental health of care providers themselves? Yeah, well, those are, you know, two enormous um, global health issues normally, let alone during COVID. Um, and I suppose the first being the capacity to access healthcare services um, and you know naturally as we'd all have sort of figured out it's everywhere have experienced massive reductions in their ability to access these services and you know whether it be um, in Australia or other parts of the world but I suppose it's different areas feel this reduction differently depending on the resources and level of access they've had to begin with and obviously how severely they have had COVID but I suspect emphasised existing inequalities in, in health and access to healthcare. Uh, so I suppose, uh, you know, if we start in Australia and other uh, MDCs all over the world, and obviously this depends on the severity of their COVID outbreaks, whilst, you know, access to healthcare has certainly been limited and has damaged and it wasn't as good as it was before, uh, I suppose the worst uh, we've seen from an Australian perspective is, you know, we've limited access to um, ICU beds, um, limited access to ventilators, you know, loss of elective surgery for periods of time, you know, health appointments, whatever the field, uh, have either had to be cancelled or converted to online. And, you know, this is these things have obviously taken their toll and had their cost on the quality of healthcare. Uh, but it, it hasn't been too severe, especially when you consider that Australia is starting with a really high level of healthcare to begin with. And what comes to mind as a comparison is uh, this really interesting study done um, into the access of healthcare in 
uh, slum communities. I think it was in Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Nigeria, maybe. And they were comparing pre-COVID and COVID levels of access to healthcare. And they noted that uh, not only were their government policies already in place that were disadvantaging slum communities um, and, you know, increasing the cost of healthcare to these places, uh, the, the barriers that they faced, you know, increased disproportionately during COVID and you saw massive drops of preventative medicine in these areas such as, you know, immunisation and screening programs. And, and, you know, this is really dangerous. And if you look at other areas in the world, conflicts, political conflicts have been a really big thing this year. And that has some really dangerous consequences on access to health care. You know, the health facilities themselves can be damaged. Um, the, safe, the safety of staff can be compromised. You notice this big migration of, of people to, you know, other countries where they're safer and you can get health prof- healthcare professionals leaving. Um, so I think ultimately... You, we noticed that we're actually really lucky in Australia to have the, the level of healthcare, you know, originally pre-COVID that's able to sustain still a really high high level of healthcare um, during COVID. And, you know, we also have financial compensation for enormous number of things in Australia, be it if you have to isolate for a COVID test or when you actually have COVID, um, which is another factor that's been really damaging for people's uh, willingness to access healthcare in other parts of the world because they don't want to risk testing positive for COVID and then losing out on work, not being able to support their families. So that was a bit of a tangent. But on the other part was mental health of um, care providers. Yes, that's right. And just to touch on what you were saying earlier, I think it almost gives us the idea of a positive butterfly effect where we can have a small change in terms of education or policy that then has much larger long-term effects and implications for a larger group of people such as having decreased stigma in a community regarding reaching out for health services and therapy or actually being able to talk to a doctor and explaining what's going on with your life that goes beyond just the condition itself but into your social and perhaps financial needs because there's so much we can do to help people once we're able to have this open communication and continuity of care. In which case I think that links in very nicely to mental health and how we can talk about how healthcare providers themselves often have a really large demand or toll on them during these times of health crises. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, you know, a really strange situation um, with COVID. If you look at, I suppose, healthcare professionals themselves, so people being employed to do that sort of work, um, you know, they're already more you know, there's plenty of research that suggests they're already more disposed to mental health issues, be it anxiety, burnout, stress or, or depression. And, you know, this is because there are these considerable vulnerabilities that have been really heightened in COVID particularly, but things like, you know, exposure to infection, uh, availability of PPE, just this general stress of the role and the stigma and you know in COVID interpersonal distancing is a really big thing so it makes sense that during lockdown uh, when all these pressures have been heightened exponentially that healthcare workers are under a greater mental health pressure than ever before uh, but that's you know not to say that there have been dramatic social changes for everyone and massive increased uh, mental health burden for you know the whole population um, and obviously that changes in severity but I think it also raises another really interesting issue of 
gender and the and the pandemic and there's a really um, quite an interesting study done by the Grattan Institute um, and I'm, in talking about that I want to acknowledge that the language used um, in this study is, is very binary but unfortunately that's just what data collection is like in its current form but are far more likely to take on caring roles for people who became ill with COVID and that made them far more likely to get COVID themselves. Uh, it also found that women tend to have less secure work before the pandemic and suffered job losses at a much higher rate, I think almost double the rate of men in Australia. And, you know, also more politically found that construction sector, which is fairly male-dominated, lost less than 5% of its work hours um, in 2020, uh, but got more than $35 billion of government assistance uh, whereas the hospitality sector, which was you know more female dominated, lost more than forty seven percent of its work hours, um, and compared to the thirty five billion dollars of assistance uh, the the construction sector received, they only received uh, about one point three billion dollars. So there's certainly um, some major gender issues that are, are being exposed in the pandemic, and you know it's important that we're aware of these things and 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 do our best to combat them both on the you know, an interpersonal level, but also on a higher, you know, policies-based level. Yes, certainly. I think what you've said touches really neatly into the idea that we need to take a multifaceted approach. And I personally think that there is so much beyond um, and below the surface that the media headlines can't just feed us. So it's really great to be able to take a step back, think about the long and short-term implications and solutions of what we do, as well as the upstream and downstream interventions. So really bringing what we've learned in theory and applying it to the real world, especially in groups and organisations like Ignite, being able to come together as health science students and using what we've learned, using our skills to come together to put this into action, make it into something that is feasible and something that we can see and do with our own hands. So yes, I think everything that you've said has really helped us gain that further perspective and it's really been great to hear from you. I think it definitely sounds like Ignite is going in the right direction to advocate for better global health outcomes, which is precisely what we like to see and we really do support here. So I truly appreciate all your time and I'm really looking forward to seeing all your future initiatives. So all the best. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, Thanks so much, Brittany. Yeah, really great to have a chat. Looks like there were some huge takeaways there, Brittany. I think it's definitely worth taking part in student volunteering opportunities. Um, There's so much to learn from them and it's really beneficial. That just about wraps it up for our October podcast and we hope there's something for you to take away. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions and stay tuned for next time with Muhai Session where we dissect health in the news and everything in between.